Good morning. Uh, welcome to, I think, the 34th London meeting of the Man Management Accounting Research Group Conference. Um, my name is Michael Bormage. I'm one of the organisers. Albemarle over there, hiding is another. But the person who does all the work is Justin over there. Um, welcome, to those, welcome to those who have come for many times and welcome to any new people. Uh, I should say that one of the objects of this is, apart from the actual talks, is to allow people from different backgrounds to talk to each other, and that's why we have quite good social times for lunch and, of course, the buffet as well and coffee. Uh, the, law, the rule is... That, now, I have to be careful to say this. The rule is that if you see anybody you think might be attractive to talk to, you are welcome to do so. I have to be very careful how I say that. Um, other than that, uh, I think all the instructions are clear and so on. If anybody hasn't been looking at notices, the nearest bathrooms are downstairs uh, as you go out towards the main door. Uh, I think that's all I need to say, really, about introductions. I'm glad you're all here. Uh, right, now my job is to introduce the first speaker, who is Laura Spira. I've probably got that wrong. Spira. Spira. Right. I, I bought, that's just an indication of what's going to happen all day. I get things wrong all the while. Um, she, of course, there are good things and bad things about people. She trained as a chartered accountant and uh, then worked in national health. Um, but in some sense must have seen the light and is now an expert at corporate governance at Oxford Books University. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> now, all I need to do is manage to get my slides up. Yep. Okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me to speak, Michael and Al. Um, as Michael has already said, um, I'm not a management accountant, um, so that's my first confession. Um, I'm not, and I've never been a management accounting, accountant, and I'm acutely aware that since I studied management accounting many, many, many years ago, um, things have changed quite a lot in the management accounting landscape. So I start from a position of considerable ignorance. Um, the other confession that I need to make is that uh, when I was told the title of this conference, my immediate reaction was, but there's no connection between management accounting and corporate governance. Um, and I was challenged to justify this view. So my presentation is really um, a way of uh, taking you through a sort of epiphany, because I came out at the other end thinking, oh, well, perhaps there is a connection. So I hope it will be interesting, um, but it's not based on any academic research, a little bit, a little bit, uh, none of my, my research anyway. Um, I do know a bit more about corporate governance, or at least I profess to. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm very interested in the words that we use to talk about accounting and corporate governance and how words can be used to define the boundaries of activities, um, to 
define the scope of accountability of those activities and the ways in which groups can use language to gain power, to claim power and influence over um, areas of activity. So I'm going to talk quite a lot about definitions um, and meanings of, of words and expressions, starting with uh, some relating to management accounting, management and corporate governance. And I'd then like to focus on the governance and management activities of the board of directors with a particular uh, look at the role of the independent non-executive director and how that has developed. Um, the focus on independence in board structure has led to some changes in board structures and it seems to me that these changes have prompted the emergence of new definitions of governance. So I'd like to look at more definitions. And finally, this blurred boundary between governance and management, we'll end up with a question as to whether it actually matters. So if we begin, I've spent the last couple of years working on um, a history of the Cadbury Committee. And it's been a really interesting journey. Um, I've written a book which will be published in September. And the best bit about this project, really, has been spending time with Sir Adrian Cabri, who is a bit of a hero of mine. And he very kindly agreed to write the foreword to the book. And this is an extract from it. Now, from his perspective, the problem that the Cabri committee faced was very much a, a sort of dereliction of duty on the part of boards in terms of their accountability and stewardship roles. And he, as you can see from certainly the second part, feels very strongly that there should be a clear divide between governance and management. Governance is what boards do. Management is what executive management does. And he feels very strongly about this. And having spent quite a lot of time with him and, and, and looked at how the Cadbury Committee worked, I saw no reason to disagree, really. This seemed to me a sensible position to take. But once I started reflecting on the relationship between corporate governance and management from the perspective of where does management accounting fit into this, I actually began to think, well, perhaps I don't agree with this. So we'll come back to this later, and I'll explain my thinking now, because I'm interested in, in words, I started off with definitions. So, the, the, the obvious place to go to for a definition was the Oxford English Dictionary. And I doubt very much whether many of you have ever had cause to look at a definition of management accounting, particularly if you're doing it. Um, but this is what the OED says. Um, and I've highlighted the words planning and administering, and we'll come back to those, particularly administering. We'll see that crops up again and again. I don't know if anybody here has any, any critique of this definition. Um, if you, oh, yeah, somebody's nodding. <laughs> it should have control in there somewhere, should it? <laughs> I, do, I can tell you how to get in touch with the OED if you disagree with the definition, and we'll come to that in a minute. So that was where I started from. This looks reasonable. So does the OED define a management accountant? And indeed it does. So what is a management accountant? As you might expect, a person who is qualified or trained in management accounting. Again, I can't see anything to take exception with there. But what really interested me were the, the 
examples of the use of the phrase that the OED had selected. And I think this is actually quite an interesting progression through um, ideas about what management accountants do. The, the 1950s one um, sort of implies that management accountants are, are trying to dominate. They want to take over in some way. Jolly good thing, really. Um, by 1980, the emphasis is very much on management accounting is to do with the present and the future, not the past. That's, that's the boring stuff that auditors have to do. So distinguishing themselves from that. And then this, this final 1990s example, which hints at turf wars between management accountants and um, chartered accountants. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, the... Moving on from that, I thought, well, perhaps I better find out what management is, because I assume that management accounting is closely related to management, unless you need new words to describe it, and we'll come back to that later. The OED has lots of definitions of management. Um, I picked out the words that are used there, organization, supervision, direction. Those are also important words that will come up again. This goes back to 1598, so management as an idea has been around an awfully long time. Um, the OED definition included a definition of the management, which reminds me of, um, there was a hail and pace program where the, they appeared as two sort of bruisers and they were known as the management. Um, so the management administers and controls, again we see those words, and then in the, the more recent example, the responsibility for and control of the resources of the company. So there's this idea that management has something to do with controlling, administering, all these interesting words. So at that point, I thought, well, let's see if the OED has a definition of corporate governance. It doesn't. What it has is a definition of the Cadbury Code, which struck me as being rather a strange thing, and it's under the heading of code. And it's wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, the bit that I've highlighted, regard to remuneration of senior management, no, no, the Cabri Committee deliberately sidestepped that. It was beyond their remit, that big issue of executive remuneration. So I got in touch with the, the editors at the OED and told them they got it wrong. And I'm waiting to hear what they're going to do about correcting it. I was asked to redraft it, and we'll see what happens. So if you want to, to challenge any of these definitions, I can tell you who to get in touch with. So let's have a look at definitions of corporate governance from elsewhere. Um, going back to Sir Adrian, he gave a speech to Perk before the Cabri report was published. And he said he didn't know where the phrase actually came from. But he noted um, that the, the issues hadn't changed very much. But the, the quotation that he selected, again, we see public company administration and control. So we've seen those words come up in, in the context of management. They also come up in the context of corporate governance. What other definitions of corporate governance can we find? Well, I found another dictionary definition that was wrong. Um, when I read what Zingales had written, I thought, well, I don't believe that. I think people were talking about corporate governance long before 20 years ago, which would have taken us back to the 1970s. The earliest example I've been able to find is written by um, an American legal scholar who was very concerned about what would happen in the event of a nuclear catastrophe. 
And he, he wanted to make sure that people were alert to this and that in the States they had legislative arrangements that would enable businesses to continue. I think that's quite imaginative. I think if, if the US had come under nuclear attack, I'm not sure exactly how many people there would have been left to run companies. But clearly that was, and he was thinking about corporate governance and he does use that expression. So to me that hinted that certainly in the States, legal scholars had been thinking about corporate governance for some time. The other thing that I came across was a book by a, a US management scholar called Richard Eels, The Government of Corporations. Although he puts government in the title, he does talk about corporate governance. So people were thinking about what we know as corporate governance a long time before it became a hot topic. I then discovered a paper that um, two academics had written, published in a journal called Poetics, which I don't normally read, um, looking at the use of the word corporate governance, which I found very interesting. They'd done a lot of content analysis on newspaper articles and other media, um, and they came, up with a, they came to the conclusion that this was a very ambiguous term that covered a multitude of meanings, which I think is absolutely true. But they also identified that there'd been a shift in focus so that the earlier uses were looking at the corporate social responsibility aspects, the role of business in society, whereas more recently um, discussion had focused very much on the board of directors. And their content analysis extended over quite a long period. Um, so I then decided, well, it would be quite interesting to have a look at and see as I've been working on the Cadbury Committee papers, how did Cadbury actually come up with the definition that they used? If you look in academic sources, you find definitions of corporate... Every, everybody writing a paper on corporate governance defines it for themselves. So there's a, a huge raft of definitions out there, depending on very much the disciplinary area that the authors are coming from. So Schleifer and Vishni, whose definition is quoted quite widely, come very much from an economics and finance perspective. Bob Tricker, who has been very important in uh, the debate about corporate governance over a long period, he was the first person in the UK to really write about it. Um, he's written several textbooks, and he introduces the idea of power, which hasn't been widely discussed. Corporate governance is about power. Um, I haven't seen a great deal discussed about that, but you could say that directing and controlling is all about power anyway. And the, the final definition, the Cadbury definition, is very, very widely cited and has been very influential. So I thought I'd have a look and see how it developed. How did that definition come to be written? Because I had access to the papers. And the beginning of the definition, it was kicked off by one of the members of the committee, Jonathan Charkham, who was very influential on the committee. He had worked, he was a, had been an advisor for the Bank of England, and he'd also worked in, he'd sat on board. So he was an experienced director as well, and he had very strong views about corporate governance. And his first suggestion in a letter to the committee was, corporate governance is the system by which companies are run. Well, the word run can mean all sorts of things, can't it? Um, Sir Adrian then annotated his um, view and extended that view very slightly, but he also included the system by which companies are run, and the word system was underlined there. So the committee were thinking very much of this as an overarching system. 
Um, and it had something to do with all these relationships. Well, that was the definition that went in the draft report, and there was some criticism of that by, f through feedback on the draft report. So the final report, in, the, in a, an interim period, the secretary of the committee drafted this note. Corporate governance is a shorthand expression for the system by which companies are directed and controlled. So run has been replaced by directed and controlled. Um, I haven't been able to find out who actually came up with that wording, but I think it was the secretary of the committee. And the committee batted it about a bit and ended up with this final definition. So it's a system and it involves directing and controlling. Um, boards of directors are responsible for the governance of their companies. The shareholders' role is to appoint the directors and the auditors and to satisfy themselves that an appropriate governance structure is in place. Now, in some ways, I think this looks a bit old-fashioned, and that's part of my thinking as I went through. But that's the definition in the Cadbury report. Sir Adrian himself also took a broader view and reverting back to the ideas that Ocasio and Joseph suggested of the original idea of the term was looking at corporate social responsibility, the, the, the corporate role in society. Um, Sir Adrian himself did actually express this view. And this is, this is a much broader view. It's not looking directly at boards of directors. It's looking at the behavior of the corporate body within society and aligning interests between individuals, corporations, and society. So you can hold the two views at the same time, it seems to me. The OECD then picked up and produced a definition. Now, there's nothing in there about directing or controlling. But there is, one word is, com, is repeated, and that's monitoring. Is monitoring different from controlling? I'm not entirely sure. So we've got a whole series of words. And the words that crop up in definitions of management, organizing, supervising, directing, administering, controlling, planning, and running, we also find some of those words cropping up under the heading of corporate governance. Directing, controlling, running. The only one that's different is monitoring. Now, do these words matter very much? Do we all know what we mean by all these different things? Do they overlap? Once I looked at those lists, I thought, well, there is clearly an overlap. Is this a problem? Um, the next thing I thought was, well, perhaps I ought to look at... Oh, uh, the thinking about what boards actually do, because boards in some way must be manager, managing and also governing. So the ne my next port of call was Bob Tricker's model. Now, he developed this way back before um, the Cadbury report, so back in the 1980s when he was thinking about what boards actually do. And everybody likes a two-by-two two matrix. This is all neat and tidy. He divided the... Uh, board activities into conformance and performance, which sounds nice. It's sort of alliterative. And on the conformance side, he identified activities relating to accountability, which would be external-facing, outward-looking, and the supervision of executive activities, which I suppose is a monitoring role, which would be inward-looking. And he suggested that conformance was focused on the past and the present. On the right-hand side, as performance, he suggested that strategy formulation is outward-looking and policy-making is inward-looking. 
um, and these are future focused. Now, you might want to debate those classifications. Um, I'm not sure that all those activities are as distinctive as that model would suggest. And I'm not entirely sure where management <coughs> accounting fits in there. Um, you might have some ideas about that. It's not, not entirely clear to me, although I know there's something called strategic management accounting, which presumably would fit in, in the top right box. But anyway, Tricker also produced this diagram, um, and this was from his first textbook, which was written in the 1980s. And he identified the relationship between governance and management by using management as a triangle and governance as a circle and showing an overlap. Now, the circle is the board of directors. The overlap represents the executive directors who are involved in management. And the bit round the outside that doesn't overlap is presumably the non-executive directors. So Tricker's way of describing this is actually quite neat. Um, students like it. You can replicate that across a whole range of different governance arrangements. So at the other extreme, you can have the circle sitting right on the top of the, the triangle with no overlap at all, which would represent um, the supervisory board arrangements that we find in continental Europe. So that, that was Tricker's view of this, um, which again implies that non-executive directors are definitely not involved in management. And this got me thinking about the role of non-executive directors um, and what boards actually do. We don't know a lot about what boards actually do. Um, these models which break up the activities of boards in, into sort of two useful areas. We don't know whether that actually works. I suspect it doesn't. I wonder how much time board directors spend on each of those roles, how far they do overlap. And there's an issue about the information that they use. Um, boards of directors often uh, are presented with, uh, by staff with lots of information. They seem to spend, what research has been done suggests they spend a lot of time listening to presentations. So how far do they use that information within these roles? And does management accounting data fit in there? So there's some questions around what boards actually do. We do make a lot of assumptions about them. And... The role of the non-executive, I think, encapsulates all this kind of ambiguity. The aspects of performance and, com and conformance are both involved in what we seem to think about what non-execs do. And the assumption that independence is tremendously important has underpinned all the thinking about corporate governance that we've seen in the UK. So where did this idea actually come from? Um, so I set off down the road to, to sort of explore that a bit. Um, and this, is, this takes us down some interesting byways. If we look back at the, the, to the point where companies were, uh, began as a legal entity, um, the early legislation allowed companies to incorporate very easily with limited liability. Uh, the idea behind that was to, to stimulate enterprise. But there was a certain level of fraud perpetrated on investors, which led to a general distrust of the corporate form. And to mitigate that, companies developed the practice of getting important people to sit on their boards to provide reassurance to investors. So it would typically, in the early days, be people with titles. Um, 
There were other directors who we would consider non-executive, people who weren't involved in the day-to-day -day operations of companies, and they would include professional advisors, uh, family connections, representatives of suppliers and customers who would be drawn in uh, to the corporate board in order to facilitate various relationships. Um, but as public companies became very large, uh, particularly through mergers, so we see ICI and Unilever, for example. The practice of having titled people on board and former military officers became more widespread. Um, again, I think the purpose was to reassure investors. The reflection of non-executives in popular culture gives you a feeling for what people actually think about these people. Go back to the Oxford English Dictionary again. Um, we, we all know that a guinea pig is a little furry animal. Yes? Little furry animal? The definition of a guinea pig actually includes not just the little furry animal, but the pleasant name for those gentlemen of more rank than means who have a guinea and a copious lunch when they attend board meetings. So there was clearly, um, within popular culture, as far back as 1871, people were not particularly impressed by the role of non-execs. Um, Trollope's novels give a, an interesting insight into this as well, uh, particularly The Way We Live Now, which looks very much at how the, what the possibilities were for boards to defraud investors. And um, Gilbert and Sullivan, a little-known um, opera of theirs, Utopia, addresses this quite directly. Um, and this carried on right the way through the 19th century into the 20th century. And even in Agatha Christie, we find an interesting passage. Um, it's a description um, of uh, how somebody became a non-executive director. Coote got me in as a director of something or other. Very good business for me, nothing to do except to go down to the city once or twice a year to one of those hotel places, Cannon Street or Liverpool Street, and sit around a table where they have some very nice new blotting paper. Then Coot or some clever Johnny makes a speech simply bristling with figures, but fortunately you don't need to listen to it. And I can tell you, you often get a jolly good lunch out of it. The Economist quoted this in an article in 2002 and said nothing had changed except for the blotting paper, which you don't see very often these days. And as, uh, in 1962, Lord Boothby, who was a very flamboyant character, who some of you may remember, um, he said, if you have five directorships, it's total heaven, like having a permanent hot bath. No effort of any kind is called for. You go to a meeting once a month in a car supplied by the company. You look grave and sage, and on two occasions say, I agree, say, I don't think so, once, and if all goes well, you get £500 a year. So at that point, we can see non-execs are not particularly well respected, and there's no emphasis on this idea of independence. Where did that come from? Well, I think it, it happened in, in the middle of the 20th century um, when a number of financial scandals prompted concern, not just about financial aspects, but in general, the state of the UK public company. And the growing importance of the non-exec monitoring role came into being. And in 1982, the Bank of England set up an organization called ProNed, which was designed to help companies get non-execs onto their board. And Jonathan Charkham, who I just mentioned, was in, in, very influential in that. And Adrian Cabri actually chaired it at one point. 
So at this stage, there's very limited research done on non-executive directors. Um, the literature about them is very prescriptive. It's produced by accountancy firms, professional bodies, telling people how they should do the job. Um, but they're still seen as, as marginal, not, not as important as they might be. And there's no mention of any tension between the two roles of strategy um, influencer and monitor, which did crop up in the academic literature. But when we get to the scandals of the 1980s and the establishment of the Cadbury Committee, we see a slightly different situation. Now, one of the hostile responses to Cadbury that people have forgotten all about was the idea that introducing this great emphasis on independent non-executive directors was actually going to move away from the unitary board idea that has been cherished for goodness knows how long in the UK. I'm not entirely sure why we think a unitary board is so special, but it's certainly enshrined in our legislation because all directors have equal responsibility. And at this point, people said, well, there will be a role conflict if you're expecting non-execs to be monitors. How are they going to do that and still work in a, in a consensus board? Um, the response to the Enron scandal in the UK was to review the role of the non-executive director. And Derek Higgs's review um, actually commissioned academic research to look at this. And the research that was produced emphasized board dynamics and said, actually, non-execs don't have a problem with performing these two roles. And the more recent um, reviews that we've seen the focus is now not on monitoring. We don't hear the word monitoring very much, but we do hear a lot about constructive challenge. Non-execs should be involved in constructive challenge. I'm not entirely sure what that means. So we don't know a great deal about non-execs. It, it sits in all sorts of different academic um, disciplines which are not effectively brought together. We don't know why non-execs do the job. There may be some of you here who have non-exec roles who can um, and help me, tell me why. I think it's a, it would be an awful job to do, really. But, um, so we don't know a great deal about them. But we can see that there, there are two paradoxes involved in this role. First of all, they are viewed by policymakers and regulators as crucial to corporate accountability, but they're also seen as ineffectual. And I've got a little list there of, of unpleasant epithets used to describe them in the media, going right up to the two, 2002. I haven't collected any lately. They're also expected to monitor their colleagues, but in our legal framework, they have equal responsibilities. And this idea of constructive challenge still implies different expectations of non-execs. So where does that take us? What's happened in the changes that have come about within the corporate governance structure is that there's an expectation that monitoring will have improved. It doesn't look as if it has. And if you think about it, if you have independent non-execs who are distant from the company, how are they actually going to do this monitoring? Because they're relying on the people they're monitoring to provide the information they need. Whether there is improved strategy when you appoint independent non-execs is also open to question. And since the 1980s, there's been evidence that more independent boards don't do better in terms of strategy. And perhaps there's a role, of, role for management accounting here um, in supporting non-execs. Now, what's actually happened? We've, got, we've moved from this situation that Tricker described to something more like this, where there's a much smaller board and a much more limited overlap with the management function. 
So what you've actually got there at the top of the triangle is the CEO and the CFO. They are the link. And major public companies now typically have a smaller board, non-executive board, and an executive board. Um, and if you think about that, we seem to have gone backwards somehow because, in a way, this gives the CEO more power. The whole point of introducing independence into boards was to constrain the power of the CEO. But actually, if the CEO is the link between the non-execs and the executives, doesn't that give the CEO more power? I think that's an interesting question. And the relationship between the executive board and the non-executive board seems to be something that hasn't been properly explored. And one way of looking at this is to go back to definitions. And we seem to have new definitions of governance. So this may be familiar to you, the SEMA-IFAC model that was published in 2004. When I first saw this, I have to say, I thought, oh, this is management accountants wanting to get into corporate governance because they think it's sexy. Um, it, it's a redefinition. It's, it, it reduces corporate governance entirely to the conformance role. There's no acknowledgement of Bob Tricker's model in the document as far as I could see, but they have picked up on it. And there's something new called business governance, which relates to performance. And the overall, the overarching idea is enterprise governance. Well, what does enterprise governance mean? Enterprise governance. Now, if you look at that definition, you can see it's taken from something else. It's a quotation. It's in quotation marks. And it comes from something called Information Systems Audit and Control Foundation. So looking at that, I thought, well, perhaps I'll follow that up and find out where this definition did come from. Because it looks to me rather like management. Um, so where did it come from? Well, it actually came from a document produced by um, the IT Governance Institute Board, which was a briefing on IT governance. And it refers back to the OECD principles of governance, which contain no reference to enterprise governance. So this term, enterprise governance, was obviously invented in the context of, looking, of, a, of a specific approach to governance looking at the role of IT. Then I started looking for more definitions. So we now have marketing governance. Marketing governance is an initiative by marketers who believe that marketing operations is an increasingly influential and ultimately fundamental aspect of marketing. What's the difference between marketing operations and marketing management? Um, they say this is analogous to earlier corporate initiatives around data governance. And marketing governance, the traditional roles, processes, and procedures that are developed and put in place to optimize the management of marketing operations. To me, this doesn't look like governance at all. There's no, no mention of accountability in there. We also have HR governance. And the HR people actually refer to something called functional governance. And again, this to me is about management, leadership and management of the function. Doesn't look a lot like governance to me. Nothing there about accountability, although it does, me it does mention compliance. Sales governance. This definitely has to do with controlling and directing and guiding and influencing and standardizing the discipline known as sales management. Not entirely clear what the relationship is there. Procurement governance. Ineffective governance is a major reason why many corporate procurement transformation initiatives fail. 
But it doesn't, again, say anything about accountability. Supply chain governance is an interesting one because there are quite a lot of academic papers about that. Um, and there's a paper from uh, people at MIT which is called Emerging Trends in Supply Chain Governance, which I thought, oh, this will tell me all about it. The word governance is only mentioned in the title. It's all about management. We even have financial governance, which I discovered in the NHS, um, which does say something about responsibilities, but again, it's very difficult to see how this relates to any kind of accountability. And risk governance. Well, this is from Lloyd's, and this, to me, only mentions risk management. Risk management is communication throughout the organization supported by explicit ownership of the risks and a clear allocation of responsibility for their day-to-day -day management. Is that governance? I'm not sure that I think so. So, we have a range of, of new governance concepts um, that seem to be kicking around. I wonder what this actually means. Does it mean that there's a political purpose to this? Are the people working in the functional areas of organizations trying to claim back some kind of stake in board activities? Because remember, they're now slightly detached from the non-executive directors. Is governance seen as important um, it, to them for that point. There's a, it, these, these concepts have a focus on systems, processes, and structures. And they do talk about control, but very much in the, the idea that it supports performance rather than the conformance or accountability role. Is this corporate governance? Does it matter? Now, when I started thinking about this, my thinking was that if governance becomes a concern at every organizational level, if everybody is talking about it, is accountable, does accountability get lost? How does it get back to the board who really have to control this? What are the processes and structures? Does it get lost among all these processes? And that was really where I began. Going back to what Sir Adrian said, he definitely thought that the distinction between governance and management mattered. There's no doubt about that. But I think that his concerns could be allayed by the fact that the corporate governance setup has changed over the last 20 years. We do now have a UK corporate governance code which reminds directors of what they need to do in terms of accountability, which was his concern 20 years ago. Um, and I'm not now sure that these two things, governance and management, should be so carefully distinguished. And I'm not sure that boards actually do when they are managing and governing. I think there's a lot of overlap. In theory, the boundary should be clearer with this move to smaller independent boards. But how does that relationship with the executive board work? Are these new governance concepts representative of a problem does the structure give more power to the CEO? And has the pursuit of structural independence created new problems that we're not entirely aware of? If we go back to NEDs, who don't seem to have a problem with balancing performance and conformance roles, have things changed since that research was done? Um, there's a lot of criticism about <clears throat> non-execs. Walker said they needed to offer more constructive challenge, Recently, the Competition Commission have deeply criticised audit committees who are composed of non-execs. Um, there is still a lot of criticism of them, which I think makes it a very difficult role. Um, I've just been doing some work on public sector non-execs, talking to them about how they conceive the role on public sector boards. And 
particularly in the health service where great changes are going on, one or two have told me that they actually have to do operational stuff. They have to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in there to make sure things are happening. Maybe this is happening um, in a more widespread way. Maybe non-execs should be doing that. Perhaps they can't perform their monitoring role without really knowing what they are doing, um, what's happening in the company. Perhaps they need to do that. Then I wondered if we just needed new words. Now, one of the big um, outcomes of the Cadbury report was actually to create the possibility of having conversations about issues that boards had difficulty talking about. Um, It was very difficult uh, um, to raise issues with a board without looking critical about your colleagues. But if you've got to come up with some kind of report on what you're actually doing, somehow that makes it more objective and boards have been able to have better conversations. The conversation goes on within companies. It also goes on between boards and investors. So perhaps... As we've seen, accepted meanings do evolve. They reflect a changing environment. They reflect the changing balance of power between interest groups. So perhaps what we actually need are new words to describe the activities of management and corporate governance. Um, One illustration of evolving definitions and this idea that there might be um, just semantic tricks involved in this is if you look at risk management, and I I think Mike's going to talk about this later, um, The Turnbull report was a really clever example of using language to solve a problem. The Cadbury committee did not manage to sort out the idea about reporting on internal control. It was very difficult. (coughs) Directors weren't prepared to stick their necks out and report. Auditors weren't prepared to look at internal control reports. And the committee actually existed for another three years after the Cadbury report was published and spent a lot of that time wrestling with this problem. But it was handed over to the accountancy profession to sort out, and it took a few years before a group headed by Nigel Turnbull came up with the idea of producing guidance that actually linked internal control to risk management. And it moved thinking, shifting this idea from control and conformance to risk management, which supported enterprise. Um, And that was quite a powerful thing. When you look back at what's happened since, it did achieve consensus. um, And they they came up with general agreement on what had been a very tricky area. Now, it seems to me that management accountant must have a clear link to risk management. um, And perhaps that's the area where management accounting can, can most helpfully contribute. But then I started thinking about, well, risk management is clearly a component of corporate governance. Or is it the other way around? Is corporate governance part of risk management? Once I started thinking about that, it got a bit too difficult for my brain. Um, But if you go back to that definition of enterprise governance, and I've highlighted there the set of responsibilities and practices exercised by the board and executive management. Perhaps they should be working together more closely. And perhaps perhaps this model is the way forward um, with a closer relationship between corporate governance and management. So perhaps the blurred boundary is not such a bad thing. My example of the National Health Service suggests that some kind of flexibility in the role of non-execs is is necessary. The Corporate Governance Code provides that basic framework of accountability, which should address what was Sir Adrian's main concern. And these new concepts of governance aligned to functional areas suggest that the clear boundary between governance and management may be a problem. 
Um, the growing importance of risk management spans that performance and conformance divide and presents an important area where management accounting could contribute. Perhaps the board model needs to be completely rethought, or is it all just a matter of the words that we choose and use? Thank you. My name is uh, Richard Baker. I'm from New York. And uh, I also am um, an affiliated professor at Rouen Business School. And I do a lot of work in France. And because you're quite interested in origins of words, you might be aware that in France there is no word for accountability. It doesn't exist in the French language. It doesn't exist in Portuguese either, I'm told. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it's a strange concept. Actually, just picking up on that point, uh, sorry, here, oh, yes. Peter Ellington, I'm from the University of East Anglia. <clears throat> I wondered um, if you could expand on the accountability aspect and who the accountability is, is to. You mean internally or externally? <laughs> Well, externally, because if we're talking about corporate governance, you seem to imply that the accountability was to investors. The general structure suggests that it is. Um, the legal framework suggests that accountability is to investors. I think that that presents another problem because the encouragement towards um, active shareholders and engagement, I think, presents another challenge for poor old non-execs. Where does their role come in this? Um, surely that's, that's what they're meant to be doing. It's what all directors are meant to be doing, thinking about shareholder interests. But um, I think the encouragement to, uh, to, to investors to be active and to engage with companies raises a whole other uh, set of issues about accountability. Um, but I'm not sure how... Well, I'm not quite sure how that affects management. I mean, if you look at what goes on... Well, the, the, the Russian company where they keep dumping all their non-executive directors, what kind, what, what's happening in terms of that organisation in, in terms of management? Is the reason the non-execs keep getting chucked off the board because they are getting too interested in what's going on in terms of management? That's a possibility. Um, so I think the internal relationships obviously moderate the idea of accountability. But we are, we are trapped, if you like, in a legal framework that, that dates back to the 19th century. Perhaps it isn't appropriate anymore. Thanks, Laura. I, I really enjoyed that. As you know, we've, we've spoken a few times about this. And the thing that's now occurred to me, because every time you speak... Sorry, who am I? Oh, God. Rick Payne, I-C-A-E-W. Um, 
And it occurred to me that I wonder if the reason that NEDs and indeed controls get a bad press is because they only become visible when there's a failure. So we only cover them in the press when a company's gone down. And what we don't see, potentially, same with audit, is when prevention occurs. And it's very difficult to research that and make that more visible. So much, maybe they're being very effective, but it's just not visible. I, I think that's quite possible. Um, I don't know how you can make that visible. Um, certainly, Ned that I've talked to have, have told me stories of difficulties that they've had in... Um, persuading boards who are heading down a strategy that is clearly completely inappropriate to change their strategy. And the obvious question then is, well, you know, why didn't you resign if you couldn't change things? And if you're on the board of a major public company, actually resigning as a non-exec sends out a very powerful signal. It can do awful things to the share price. There are people's jobs at risk there. And so I think NEDs think very, very carefully about using the nuclear option. You don't see it happen very much. Um, But they may well be working away really well and heading companies off from disaster, and we're never going to know about it. And it is just like audit. We don't hear about good audits. We only hear about the bad ones. It's worth bearing that in mind. Uh, Simon Priest, civil servant. Uh, my question is on independence. To what extent are non-executive directors truly independent, whereas they may be non-executive directors of another association organisation or executive directors of, a, of an organisation which may cross-cast in their duties, specifically in the public sector? Thank you. That's an interesting question. Uh, what does independence actually mean? Um, I suppose what we're using, we're using independence that can be uh, defined and checked factually as a proxy for independence of mind, um, because you can't measure that, you can't determine whether somebody is going to behave independently. And of course people behave differently at different points in different situations. So somebody who is defined as independent may not behave independently once they're actually in a board situation. So I think it's, it, it, it's um, an elusive ideal, the idea of independence. And in many ways, I, I think it's quite damaging because it does mean that independent directors have great difficulty in finding out exactly what is going on in a company. They are reliant on information sources coming from the people that they are monitoring. They don't have a lot of time. These are part-time people. You know, can you expect... Um, great things from a bunch of part-timers who do have other interests and other relationships. Um, So I think there are big problems about this idea of independence, which has been very firmly established within all the thinking about corporate governance in this country. Hello, Karen Reid, Director of Finance for the Aldenham Foundation, which is a charitable group of companies. Uh, I have to say I was very surprised that you didn't actually mention the Charities Commission and their view on corporate governance because it seems to me from what you've researched they've probably done more work than most other people on the matter and they have quite firm views in my opinion on what uh, they expect the responsibilities etc of um, directors and governors of a charitable institution. 
And in many ways, I think that can actually um, be looked at much wider than pure charities because there are an awful lot of not-for-profit organizations who have similar types of boards. So if, if you like, when I looked at that, I was very surprised that you hadn't mentioned this when they had obviously done so much work on this. Well, I'm very glad that you said that because I, I haven't got round to doing that. I'm just beginning um, to look at this. But for a long time, I've been concerned about the uh, transfer of corporate governance mechanisms from the private sector to public, not-for-profit, third sector organisations. And it seems to me these have in, in many cases been transferred wholesale. And in fact there are limitations to the way they've worked in the private sector. So my gut feeling is that these things have been reinterpreted in other areas. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to look at certainly with public sector NEDS. Oh. issues as to why sometimes the, the uh, if, if you like, not-for-profit organizations have had to become companies is the, is the limitation of liabilities to those at the very top of these organizations. And that has really driven it. But I think that the, 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 the private sector, industry and commerce, in terms of corporate governance, probably have a lot to learn from what's actually going on elsewhere. And there hasn't been any, there's not a lot of, um, when you look at um, non-execs on boards, there's not a lot of crossover between the private sector, the public sector, and the There aren't people who are serving on, on boards in each sector. So I'm not quite sure how, whether that would be a better thing, whether there should be more crossover. But it, it's, a, it's an area that nobody's researched. Ah, SMEs are a completely, different, a completely different thing because my impression, and again there's been very little research on non-execs in MSE, SMEs, but my impression is that a non-exec in an SME rolls up his or her sleeves and does get stuck in. And this distinction between governance and management is much more blurred in that area. Can I say what? Um, as I understand it, in charities at least, uh, the non the trustees, um, have much stronger liabilities than the people in the corporate sector, in the sense that um, if trustees uh, fail to follow all the rules, they, are per they can be personally liable, which is quite different from the corporate sector, whereas you have to, to be really caught out as a director, you have to really do something quite amazingly different, uh, weird. Um, for example, all the, all the bank, banks uh, people who um, seem, to, seem to bear some responsibility, somehow or other, have not um, been called upon to bear that responsibility. Whereas I think in the charitable sector, um, it could well be enforced and people could well be ruined. It is, I think, uh, I mean, I think it's a carryover from the public sector, the private sector, mm -hmm. but somehow or other it's changed. I don't know whether you agree with that. Um, in, in, in what way? Well, in the way that, 
in the way that the responsibilities of the trustees of a charity are much more stringent, or rather uh, have much greater consequences than they might do in the private sector. That's what we're all hoping. <laughs> but yeah, I Yes, my, my, my point was simply that uh, in both areas, uh, although there was all sorts of really nasty penalties and things which may possibly uh, be um, visited upon uh, non-executive directors and trustees. In fact, in both cases, it's enormously unlikely. So whether that bites very hard, I don't know. Anyway, sorry, that's just me. Um, where are we? One there, and one over there. Richard Weninger, Group Management Accountant, TI Automotive. Um, let me come back to one of your earlier slides about monitoring. I was a little puzzled by a comment that you made, which was something like, I'm not sure whether there's any difference between managing and monitoring. Um, I think there's a very important difference. Um, my role is purely as a, a monitor um, in my role as management accountant. I feel that it's important that I am... Uh, gathering information and measuring things, monitoring the, um, the, the numbers that are coming in from our businesses so that I can present that information to more senior people, true warts and all, you know, the reality of it, um, to enable them to then manage the business by deciding what things they want to focus on or change or um, you know, do something about. Um, but if I attempt to mix up management with the monitoring that I'm doing, there's a danger that uh, you know, I diminish the, the quality of the information that I'm giving to them. Um, that my role is not to attempt to manage anything, but um, simply to monitor. And the more I focus on monitor and try not to manage, the better will be my monitoring. Yes, I, I think I was trying to make the distinction between monitoring and controlling. Um, but I think that's a, that's a very interesting description of, of your role. Um, it seems to me that management accountants have a lot in common with internal auditors as well. Um, and I don't know how far you've explored that. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of a similar role. It's, it, it is a monitoring role that feeds into management. Um, I suppose when you get to board level which is really where I started, um, thinking about the difference between the monitoring role at board level and management. Um, is, that's, that's where it gets blurred. I can see within, within the, the functions of supplying the information to the board, and clearly monitoring is very important, and that supports management. Yeah. Well, over there. Uh, Ken Simmons, London Business School. I was first a non-executive director, I think, British Steel, 1967. 
and so 40 years of non-executive directorship. The, the point is that every time something comes up at a board, if you're a management accounting, uh, accountant, you're using that skill. You're quantifying it. I mean, it's all about money, even in a charity. And uh, so every aspect of your skill comes to the fore. Now, Ian Fisher and I asked all the JDIPMA names over the years what they'd done with their management accounting, how they got it, because the JDIPMA was vanishing. Now, most of them became chairman and directors and so on. And they all said they used it every day. So I, there's no doubt that when you're sitting on the board, that's what you're doing. Um, the added issue is um, uh, what you do about it when you don't agree with what the internal directors are saying. Now, the problem over and over and over I encountered was that uh, a chief executive or a chairman, if uh, wasn't the chief executive, may um, want to control things and keep things from the board. And they would do it by saying to the internal directors or inferring to the internal directors, you lose your job if you speak out about this. So the non-executive director has a responsibility to inquire. I mean, you, 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 it's like the dentist probe. You, you put it in and you wiggle it around and, and you see. Uh, but it doesn't make you popular. Um, then, I mean, I've talked to Adrian about this, Adrian Cadbury, about what you do when you discover something, but you're in a minority. Now, should you be a majority as a non-executive director so that you can vote it through? It's quite clear that the executive directors will all be dead stum uh, because they want to keep their jobs. Uh, anyway, and, and the last comment, I think, is... Uh, uh, Phil Harris at Manchester came up with this book, Management and Machiavelli. And if you go into it, Machiavelli was onto a lot of these issues because he really studied um, how Rome was governed uh, uh, from the year dot. And uh, that means that you're onto a field that has a tremendous history. You don't have to start with Americans in 1962. <laughs> um, one more. Uh, Richard Lachlan from King's College London. Um, thank you, Laura. Very nice indeed. Um, one comment and one question. The comment I would make is that uh, don't hold out too much hope that the public sector has sorted all this lot out, because uh, despite the nice comments about the charity commissions, and they've done more than most, the same blurring of boundaries that you're, you've discovered in the private sector exist in the public sector and in the, in the third sector as well, and it creates more problems, actually, um, but we can talk about that separately. Um, but actually, this raises a, a question I wanted to raise. Um, the, the idea about the unitary board, because it, as you know, the continental dual board system is one that actually makes these, tries to make these distinctions very clear. Why is it Cadbury and everybody else from all the sectors continue 
to be so enamoured with a, a unitary board? Question mark. I wish I knew. I have absolutely no idea. It's a mystery to me. Um, and even Adrian has said that you know, he doesn't understand why. What's wrong with having dual boards? Why They might work. Um, they might work better than the situation we've got. I've no idea. It's a, it seems to be a, a deep cultural commitment of some, in some way that has never really been challenged, um, possibly because it, it's so enshrined in our legislative system. Um, so I, I, I did have some hope that the, the most recent review um, of the company's act might change things, but I don't know how you change the view of, of legislators. I don't know. I don't know. Can't answer that. Uh, one My name is George Gross. I'm a consultant with a firm called Corporate Development International, and we're specialised advising companies. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your presentation, but I found it very short. Uh, an essential point, which is examples. I liked your diagrams. It would have been so nice to have some, maybe you can just add a few words now about how some of the main companies in, in the UK are organized from that point of view because either you've already met with them or maybe you will be meeting with them. Maybe you can complete your presentation in the book you're writing or something about what's, how, how things actually operate. Uh, that's very important. Uh, this evening I see we have a lecture by... Senior Independent Non-Executive Director, Mr. Philip Gregory. I don't know if he's here. But uh, while, while waiting to hear what he has to say from a practical point of view, could you just give us a few illustrations of some of the larger companies in the UK that you might have met already where the, where the boundaries, because in every, uh, from a theoretical point of view, the boundaries are blurred. But from a practical point of view, it would be interesting to know how I or other big companies, how they're organized today from that point of view. That's actually a challenge I can't meet, I'm afraid. Um, my most recent research into large UK PLCs dates back um, about 10 years, and I was looking at audit committees specifically at that stage. Um, and the, at that stage, audit, committee, audit committees have developed tremendously. They have changed. They've got a much bigger role now than they had when I was doing my research. Um, and I asked audit committee chairs what kept them awake at night. Um, that's always a good question for a researcher to ask. You know, what, what, really, what keeps you awake at night? What, what gives you nightmares? And they all said complex IT systems. Those were the things that they were most anxious about, certainly 10 years ago. I don't know whether things have changed, but that was a big preoccupation as far as audit committee chairs were placed at that stage. Um, so I can't really give you any examples. Um, I have some examples of what's going on in the public sector at the moment and how non-execs are viewing their roles. But we're at a very early stage of our research and there's, there are clearly very, very different views. It seems to me that every board is different. The dynamics of every board are different and they change over time. So generalizations about what suits boards, what, what, how boards should organize themselves, I think are very dangerous. And the beauty of the Corporate Governance Code is that we have this idea of comply or explain, which does give scope for organizations to, to um, make the most of whatever situation they happen to be in. There is an element of flexibility in there. 
I think it's a pity that it doesn't seem to be working as well as it could because the explanations are not of the highest quality that they could be. But then companies don't want to reveal information particularly. How are non-executive directors proposed, recruited, recruited, proposed, and appointed. Normally, it's the managing director who proposes at a board meeting, at, at an annual general meeting. So there's always some very close connection. Are they really independent? That's another issue that hasn't been researched, and that's nomination committees. How do they work? It would be wonderful to get into them, but it's very, very difficult. Thank you very much for getting us off to a very good start. I mean, one of the interesting things is we go into the rest of the day now being nicely confused about the various parts of all governments. I imagine in due course we'll become equally confused about uh, managing accounting. Thank you very much. Pleasure to introduce uh, Mike Power, who um, is Professor of Accounting at NSE and Director of the Centre for Analysis of Risk and Regulation uh, at NSE. I should say to you that um, the, the way risk is defined is quite different in different places at NSE. In finance, risk is defined in one way. A car is defined in a large number of ways, or perhaps not, maybe. Um, Mike also has the uh, probably written one of the most cited uh, books in accounting, um, his book on auditing. Uh, he, he is also an independent director, which makes it quite relevant for today. Uh, but you should bear in mind also he's a season ticket holder of Queen's Park Rangers. Thanks, Michael. That was a very cheap shot, by the way. Um, good, good morning, everybody, um, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. My head is still spinning about Laura's presentation, actually. I mean, a really great presentation. I'll just add a postscript. I actually think the unitary board is dead, not in legislation. But if you examine the recent pronouncements of the FSA, uh, recent documents, and now the, new, uh, the two new bodies, every time they mention the board, what they mean are the NEDs. So the NEDs are the new kind of skip outside uh, your house where more and more expectations are being loaded in. Uh, so I am one of your, and you use this phrase, poor old NEDs. You know, I, I'm sort of living that experience. I also think role tensions... Uh, uh, are never going to go away. I think they exist in all areas of life, uh, all sorts of role tensions that all of us have. So the tension between monitoring and uh, accountability and performance type ideas, that just exists. So 
I don't think you can ever write a set of rules that will take those role tensions away. But I mean, I, I mean, it's a really lovely presentation, and, and you actually got some questions about your paper as well, uh, which is uh, can be unique. Anyway, um, on to, to my talk, um, Searching for Risk Culture. I should say uh, this is a kind of joint uh, project with uh, Simon Ashby of Plymouth University and my colleague, hard-working colleague, Tomasa Palermo here at LSE. Uh, and um, I suppose if you had told me that uh, five years ago that I was going to be working on a project with culture in the title, uh, I'd have said it was ridiculous and bet my house against it. Uh, I've always found the academic literature on uh, culture rather indigestible, highly contestable, and a lot of the efforts to apply some of those concepts, Mary Douglas and so on, to organizational practices uh, left a lot to be desired. There, there are some of culture. Uh, once the, word, the concept of culture or risk culture becomes uh, a concept in practice, uh, then I start to get interested. Uh, and uh, I'm even more interested when organizations start to engage in transformation processes in the name of having a better uh, risk culture. So uh, I think that is the phase that we're in now, uh, the financial crisis and the failure of a number of financial institutions, uh, as we'll see in a minute, has been attributed to uh, defects in culture, uh, whatever that means. And uh, just coming back to Laura's presentation, as a NED uh, who chairs a risk committee of a large PLC, I'm actually responsible personally for nurturing the risk culture of the organization. So I have more than a passing interest, passing academic interest in this, in this project. So the project um, as a whole, uh, there are three of us, and we have a, a kind of multi-sponsor sort of Formula One ticket. Uh, so I want to I thank all our sponsors, particularly SEMA, who are here today, but also ESRC, the Chartered Insurance Institute, and the Lighthill uh, Risk Network um, for supporting this project. And, and it's a, a sort of multi-funder um, pilot project by the, uh, the ESRC, uh, a bit of an experiment. Uh, and I was approached to see if uh, at CAR we would be interested in taking on uh, an investigation into, uh, into risk culture. Um, the problem we're talking to you today is that we're right in the middle of it, and in fact we're right in the middle of some rather sort of sensitive dimensions of, uh, of the project itself. So what I'm going to be talking to you about is really some of our results and thinking so far, uh, and given the nature of the audience, uh, I can't resist a few uh, prescriptive thoughts as well. Um, so... What about the sort of relevance of this idea of, uh, of culture as an object? Well, there's no shortage of uh, quotes from people and newspapers uh, indicating that. So um, the House of Commons Treasury Committee in 2009, um, you can read the quote for yourselves, but uh, halfway through, uh, failing in their duty to establish a culture within their institutions which supported both innovation and risk management. Both innovation and risk management. And I think the latest uh, um, report by the Parliamentary Committee, the Banking Commission Committee uh, on HBOS sort of reinforces uh, some of those messages as well. And um, uh, not your, uh, uh, Walker, um, uh, in his, the, the Walker Review, uh, which uh, said a lot about NEDs and risk committees and so on. Um, and he talked of uh, um, the uh, 
little opportunity for effective challenge within the boardroom. So, sort of culture being identified with uh, strongly with this constructive challenge concept that we heard about uh, uh, earlier. And then. Marcus Agius said the leaders of industry must collectively procure a visible and substantive change in the culture of our institutions so as to fundamentally convince the world once again that they are businesses to be relied on. And finally, Bob Diamond said in 2012, um, how time flies and changes, I take particular issue with the attacks on Barclays' culture and character There's no question that the behavior of a small group of traders related to LIBOR manipulation was reprehensible and not in keeping with Barclays' high standards. And uh, although it's not in your packs, I thought I would add in uh, a little um, excerpt from the Salts Review, which was published a couple of weeks ago. Um, Sir Anthony Salts uh, uh, did an investigation into Barclays' business practices, uh, essentially its culture, Uh, And he came to some reasonably, not unsurprising, but uh, very similar and reasonably tough conclusions. Um, uh, Taking the the second block there, there was an overemphasis on short-term financial performance, reinforced by remuneration systems that tended towards to reward revenue generation rather than serving the interests of customers and clients. Uh, There was also, in some parts of the group, a sense that senior management did not want to hear bad news, the constructive criticism, uh, and that employees should be capable uh, of solving problems. This contributed to a reluctance to escalate issues of concern. Uh, And he goes on in his report, there's a whole chapter on uh, uh, the culture uh, of Barclays and its business practices. So I think there's... uh, There's no doubt that uh, culture is an object of concern, uh, albeit uh, not a a very clear one to us. And I suppose uh, our initial thinking was to take the emphasis on culture and risk culture uh, more as a symptom, that we shouldn't assume we know what it is. Uh, Going to the Oxford English Dictionary doesn't help very much. Uh, And that we should uh, come at this interest in culture uh, in in as intelligent way as uh, we possibly can. Um, But just to show uh, the the nature of that interest, this is the kind of traditional sort of um, word analysis that academics do to see whether uh, there's a kind of increase or decrease in interest in a a particular way of framing an issue. Uh, And so we track the use of the word, not culture, but the use of the word risk culture um, over, uh, over a decade and you get this kind of what people call the hockey stick effect, an explosion of interest uh, in the period after the financial crisis. So again, I don't think this is telling us much other than the fact that the use of this term is a kind of symptomization of uh, issues going on in the financial sector. Uh, and uh, it does actually reflect you know, a high degree uh, of uh, of interest that we've seen both from talking to CROs and in some of my own personal engagements with CFOs, this whole uh, category of risk culture is very much uh, at the top of their mind. And I think, um, I mean, your question at the end, uh, Laura, about uh, what do audit committee chairs sort of lie awake and think about, um, well, I know that CFOs and CROs also lie awake and think about how on earth can I get to grips with this thing called risk culture, which I haven't defined yet, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to come at that uh, just in a moment. 
So the risk culture problem, well, um, Warren Buffett in 2011 also reinforced the whole kind of emphasis on the importance of culture. Uh, Culture more than rule books determines how an organization behaves, so there's some sense of it being foundational below the, uh, the kind of management accounting, risk management practices that we engage in, the sort of surface work that people do. There's, a, there's an underlying uh, environment of some kind. But then I think it kind of gets interesting. So having kind of symptomized uh, financial services in this way, then uh, um, uh, the FSA chairman in 2010 said we don't really know if we actually have the tools to change banking culture. So it's both something that's very important but a rather problematic, uh, what I would call, um, management concept. And um, culture is therefore, risk culture, culture is therefore slippery conceptually uh, and operationally. And in other forums, people have put up their hands, and I can predict it, and say, oh, what's the relationship between culture uh, and risk culture? Um, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure. Uh, the, the two terms are used often independently. And I think it was a quite interesting point, coming back to your um, presentation, Laura. You said that uh, um, uh, what's the relationship between corporate governance and risk management? And I think you said something very accurate, that actually governance is being increasingly equated with risk management. Uh, and I think some of the cultural issues in, uh, in banks are now being inc- increasingly equated with risk culture. So which is the subset and which is the, the kind of dominant uh, view of things? I would say risk culture is swallowing culture, if you like, in, in that sense. And uh, some of the, uh, the results I'll give you later on kind of bear that out. But um, we don't... Uh, is risk culture a, a subset of, uh, of culture itself, or is it the other way around? And uh, whatever it is, uh, can it be managed? Can it be managed in some sense? Or more interestingly, how do we reconfigure it as a management object so that it can be managed? How do we make um, risk culture into a manageable object uh, and something that can go into, in very concrete terms, the terms of reference of my risk committee? as something that I can action. So uh, I think that is a kind of interesting management accounting problem in its general sense. How do you take a kind of large, unwieldy conceptual object and make it into a whole set of uh, routines and diagnostics and uh, an MI which uh, management uh, can act on? So that's the sort of space uh, 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 of uh, our initial kind of worrying and thinking uh, about this. And one of, the, one of the objectives we had was not to try and... Um, I mean, I think definitions are really, really interesting because they tell you a lot about the history uh, of a concept. And, and, I, and I very much uh, appreciated your historical point of view. Uh, and um, I suppose it would be really... I think the, the, the history of risk culture as a category is a rather short one. Uh, I think it's sort of come into to being relatively recently. But um, we're not really looking uh, to strictly define uh, risk culture uh, or the elements, or even normatively, at least at first, the elements of, of a good culture. I suppose risk culture would be those kind of aspects of the culture of an organization which are relevant to its risk-taking and risk-mitigation uh, 
um, activities. But I, I wouldn't want to populate that in any, in any more definitive way than that. So what we decided to do was have a kind of two-pronged methodological approach into this phenomena, a two-pointed two attack. And one is based on what we already know as academics, a lot of the literature and theory on, uh, on why big disasters happen, what are the missed warnings, what high-reliability organizations like, uh, like oil companies or uh, nuclear plants and, or aircraft carriers and things like that, how they um, sort of pay attention uh, to risk in their, in their everyday activities. So there's a very much a sort of literature theory-based um, uh, drive uh, part of our work, which enabled us to kind of define what we thought were a few, uh, if you like, cultural drivers or, or um, key kind of points in, uh, in um, processes where um, cultural issues were at stake in risk-taking. Uh, and that helped to shape some of our own survey work, uh, which is actually ongoing. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, that's actually ongoing. So all of that is sort of driven by us as academics. But uh, where we kind of began was uh, more agnostically. We thought, well, um, as I said at the beginning, now that uh, culture is not just an academic concept, now that risk culture is something that uh, boards of directors are saying to the CRO, actually, um, can you tell us more about our risk culture and what is it and how can we change it and is it adequate? Um, there has emerged, if you like, what we call bottom-up practice-based approach to risk culture and we wanted to work with CROs and others to work, uh, observe and understand the very specific work streams that they were uh, engaged in to uh, try and access uh, this, uh, this category, um, provide some assurance to their boards but also to, uh, to the rest of the organization. So the, at this level, uh, we're thinking about how is risk culture operationalized as, as a, as a um, management practice. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, in the shadows of this uh, operationalization, there's a whole community of advisors who've suddenly sprung up and seem to know a heck of a lot about risk culture uh, and are advising organizations. Uh, and, of course, um, that is not a surprise, uh, but it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. So the other, um, we, we did look at some definitions, and uh, some of those are listed out in an appendix in the paper that uh, uh, I think is uh, in your pack. Um, and we found that um, there are a number of problems with them. I mean, uh, from an academic point of view, uh, we, many of them are rather uh, reductionist. They're all, all quite different. Uh, they're quite reductionist in the sense that they try to simplify risk culture to make it an easier sort of managerial object, as, as I said. Uh, and um, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily criticizing that. I think uh, PwC, who I've done a little bit of work with, have a very kind of interesting um, focused opera opera operationalization of uh, risk culture which they designate as kind of moments that matter. So we can't think about culture or risk culture in its totality, but there are going to be moments that matter in an organization, interfaces with customers, for example. The client's uh, interface is something that all, everyone in financial services is now uh, very, very uh, focused upon in a way that they weren't before. 
So, and, there, and there are other uh, conceivable moments that matter. So making culture into a very concrete, episodic, uh, and visible uh, type of, uh, of thing. But we also found that um, you know, there's still a lot of ambiguity in the, uh, in the definitions, and they're also very, very static. They tend to, they tend to be a bit focused on, um, on individual attitudes and individual personality types. And I know there's a lot of consulting work that goes on in that sense. Um, but rather than uh, organizational processes. So we, we found that uh, existing um, thinking about risk culture was sort of rather sort of ind- individualistic. And I suppose our, our sort of prior was that risk culture is a much more um, sort of dynamic uh, uh, phenomenon uh, that evolves over time. And there's no necessary optimal. There's no kind of general story, uh, and this comes out from our research, that can be told about, uh, about what this means. But I think we felt that a number of the existing um, definitions ignored the interplay between actors and, uh, and organizational structures. And then finally, I mean, we, we've, uh, it's probably me rather than my, my two colleagues, so they might not disagree, might agree with me, but we felt that a lot, of, a lot of the kind of discourse of culture and risk culture was very biased by an ethics of solidarity. You know, if only we could all be kind of more solidaristic and work together as teams and all the rest of it. Uh, and and we, we felt that that was a rather kind of tired metaphor for organizations and that uh, um, uh, we wanted to kind of get away from that a little bit. We also, uh, I mean, I've touched on some priors. We also have some conceptual priors about the, the space. So um, sort of up to this point and beyond, I, I'm really... We're doing a kind of cleansing job and trying to think through and conceptualize um, what risk culture might be and where, you know, where best we might look at it. Uh, and our conceptual priors were, that, uh, were of plurality, that is to say there might be different risk cultures uh, both between organizations and within them and we should be attuned to uh, sort of subcultures. You know, I work uh, as a non-executive director in a life company, which is sort of full of actuaries. Well, they're definitely, you know, a little sub-risk culture of of their own. Um, Very number-driven, not very behavioral in thinking, all the the stuff you you would expect and and tell jokes about actuaries in terms of. So um, we shouldn't expect there to be a Barclays culture or even an LSE culture or anything like that. That is... That is a rather kind of uh, broad generalization. But equally, risk culture might be a kind of more macro phenomenon that uh, uh, rather than requiring all financial institutions to sort of manage their risk cultures as some kind of unique asset, perhaps there is something cross-sectional. And if it's cross-sectional, then uh, shouldn't the management of it be in some sense cross-sectional, which takes it into the space of, of the regulator? Uh, and I suppose the kind of snap things you could say about that is that uh, the risk culture, the, the culture of risk-taking and risk management in financial services um, is dominated by um, financial economics, by the market risk uh, uh, management paradigm, uh, and uh, that is where the kind of intellectual and practical kudos lives, uh, and that's something that is, that is a reflection of the culture of those institutions. Um, the second conceptual prior was really that we should think about um, 
this phenomenon in terms of bandwidth and limits. And uh, we're still really thinking about this uh, in conceptual terms, so I wouldn't say this is definitive, but um, in our work and discussions, uh, we kind of feel that uh, whatever a risk culture is, it's a kind of series of trade-offs. And maybe the real issue about risk culture for financial organizations is to be conscious of the trade-offs between controlling and risk-taking. Uh, and, and actually, it doesn't matter where you kind of sit in those trade-offs, unless there's a big public interest component, but, uh, but, but the kind of discourse around risk culture, at least publicly, is about this self-awareness of these trade-offs. Now, in, in other language, we call that risk appetite. We call that risk appetite or risk tolerance. But these, these trade-offs between the, these different values, these different modes of survival, one is the kind of maintaining your license to operate and the other trade-off is earning enough of a return for your, sh your shareholders and all organizations are kind of spun out between them and um, there are all sorts of examples of this, just, I mean, you know, an example very close to, to, to home, I mean, I would say, you know, LSE's decision to, uh, you know, in principle, educating um, Libyan civil servants was sort of the right thing that an organization like this should be doing. But we didn't really, we probably didn't really articulate in our decision making the trade-offs between that uh, as a kind of upside activity and the risks associated with it. Uh, but I, personally, I don't think that was the wrong decision, uh, although sort of history kind of tends to uh, come out and say that. That's actually what I think this institution should be doing in, the, in spreading the democratic process. So very, an example very, very close to home, a kind of uh, a trade-off that we weren't fully aware of as an organization uh, and not to do with banking. And, th and that means this probably isn't a, a right uh, risk culture, but there are uh, elements of overheating that um, boards uh, and, uh, and regulators should be aware of. So, we, we're kind of very tentative conceptual model here, and it's a rather busy, busy kind of slide, so I apologize for that. But it's really a kind of visualization of uh, what I was just saying, that between these two extremes of um, you know, total control and producing no kind of return at all versus uh, you know, un, unfettered search for yield, which uh, risks kind of absolute catastrophic failure, organizations are kind of, you know, positioned differently uh, on, that, uh, on that spectrum uh, and uh, manage their bandwidth or their, their risk appetite uh, in different ways. And if you think of uh, the organization, organization A here on, on the left, um, it's kind of got a... Uh, um, it's got a conservative kind of position on the, on the total bandwidth. Uh, all its subunits are, are fairly well aligned, uh, and uh, it's, it's sort of in control. Uh, the aspired bandwidth or risk appetite is never going to be exactly the same as the actual. It's always sort of uh, changing, but uh, this seems to be an organization that uh, sort of has a reasonably stable equilibrium in terms of its... Uh, um, uh, kind of risk culture as defined in these terms. Whereas organization B has much more internal dispersion of risk cultures and uh, a unit B to the far right 
which is, uh, you could argue, is a sort of more uh, aggressive frontier of, uh, of earnings pursuit. So there's no magic in this. This is just a visualization of the, the kind of differences that we, that we might expect. Uh, and uh, we're not saying one risk culture is better than the other, although clearly if you have um, you know, actual behavior which is well beyond the kind of aspired behavior, assuming you can define that, then uh, that, that is a kind of governance uh, issue. So in order to explore um, these risk culture work streams, we had uh, um, interviews with relevant actors um, in nine financial uh, institutions, insurers and banks, um, and uh, we're very grateful to those people. We've, we've actually been expand since uh, I wrote these slides, we've been expanding that interview base uh, quite a bit. Um, we've also been, we're also due to talk to uh, EasyJet uh, about their safety environment just to get a, a point of contrast and, uh, and with uh, an oil company as well. Um, and <clears throat> we intend to uh, do a lot of further interviews uh, and what, where we are right now is we have run some uh, customized surveys inside four institutions and we've just organized a follow-up with uh, some focus groups. So, as I said at the beginning, we're kind of right in the middle of, of, of this process. Um, clearly, there's quite a lot going on in terms of the publication of uh, documents that are relevant to risk culture. Uh, uh, I mentioned the SALTS report, but I wouldn't rule out the, uh, um, the Francis report on the NHS Mid-Staffordshire Trust, um, which is, makes for truly horrible reading, but uh, is also uh, an object lesson in um, cultural decay, if you like. Very interesting from our point of view, just as an aside, uh, one aspect of the Francis report, which I'm sure you're all aware of, is the sort of pathology of targets that went on in that organization. So there were loads of targets about uh, patient quality, patient care quality, uh, and they were all trying to hit those and forgot the patients. So there's the most, most extreme um, example, if you like, of, uh, of a, if you like, a, a target culture that ate itself in some sort of way. We've also done an extended survey with SEMA members and members of the Charters Insurance Institute as well. And I'll say a little bit about the results from the latter, because those are the ones that we've processed. So... Um, so much for conceptualization and overview. Here's some, um, some stuff uh, that we came up with. And um, we've kind of organized uh, our thinking uh, from these initial interviews and, and subsequent follow-ups uh, around four themes. Uh, and the first theme is information and organizational structure. And I think probably a management accounting audience would be quite appreciative of this because... Very often, risk culture is framed and imagined, even in the SALTS review, as, as a kind of ethical issue of changing the ethics of the organization. Uh, but actually, in our conversations, we found that uh, organizational actors um, who had to operationalize this were talking much more in terms of information quality, information habits, uh, and organizational structure. And indeed, we found a very strong emphasis on centralization uh, and risk oversight, indeed the creation of new units, new departments who would have this sort of overseeing role. 
Um, again, I mean, I keep referring back to your paper, but I think that's, that's a good thing. Uh, I think there are these sort of, it's not just the board, there are these sort of layers inside organizations. And, and uh, uh, it's kind of interesting that UBS had no consolidated view in, in, in 2008, no consolidated view of their exposure to structured products. So one department was uh, engaging in some and another department was doing. But you'd expect that, it's just a shocking fact, that, uh, that, would be cons that information would be consolidated so that the risk department would have an overall view uh, of what was going on um, in that, that particular product type. Well, absolutely not. So I think one of the lessons from that, which has percolated into the risk world, is much more aggressive centralization and clearance of information. Um, and, uh, and, and that meant sort of developing uh, or using risk and compliance metrics, using existing bits of management information uh, to uh, be indicators of the health of risk culture in some sense. So this is not a kind of touchy-feely conceptualization of culture. This is an operational um, knowledge-based uh, risk culture impression that we're getting from, from different actors. Uh, and uh, one organization had created a, a sort of data repository in this sense to encourage through intranet facilities sort of internal knowledge sharing and uh, escalation possibilities which are not whistleblowing so that they're not stigmatized by whistleblowing but there's a natural kind of sharing of incidents. So, um, you know, the question that in, in our research that we were kind of carrying forward is really... Um, Maybe, as I said at the top there, borrowing from uh, my training in moral philosophy uh, 30 years ago or more, uh, or implies can. In other words, you know, if, the, if, you know, if you want to kind of re-energize the kind of ethics of an organization, then actually information plays a, a tremendously important role. I find that as a non-executive director, we mentioned independence, Actually, having more information and better information makes me more independent. They're not separate things. It makes me more capable of exercising independent judgment. So I think, and interestingly, that's where CROs had got to in our participant organizations. So they would see kind of risk culture as actually reinforcing um, existing risk management disciplines in terms of... Uh, common understandings of uh, risk appetite, common understandings of what happens when uh, activity limits are breached, uh, and these sorts of things. Uh, because there was no shortage of information in banks and financial institutions during the financial crisis. There were no shortage of lead indicators. Uh, the issue was uh, action, actionability. The second kind of theme we picked up is um, something I call connecting the first and second lines, and, and this might be a kind of mysterious concept to you. There has uh, evolved over time, uh, and um, I don't know where it's come from, and maybe in your history, Laura, you can kind of find out where this comes from. The three lines of defense uh, is now a, a real conventional wisdom in uh, the organization of financial services, and the regulator expects to see uh, three lines of defense. Uh, and, of course, you know, a lot of uh, important things around risk culture happen in the first line, which is more close to management, is the, is the actual management and trading activity and so on. Uh, and the second line of defense is the kind of risk management and oversight activities, but you've also got 
oversight activities at the, the management level. Uh, and there's a kind of tension in the thinking about risk culture is are we actually talking about changing the, uh, the first line, as it were, or are we talking about making the risk management function a more effective uh, kind of second line? And we found our respondents, there are all sorts of discussions about the risks of capture by the first line, the need to maintain um, clarity and independence, uh, something called dotted line reporting, which whenever you see an organization chart and people explain to you what's going on, suddenly there are all these dotted lines going on which uh, trying to capture uh, the reality of interaction rather than the formally structured hierarchy. Uh, and um, the, the kind of at the heart of it all seemed to be this issue of how to escalate risk issues through the organization. How is that actually uh, facilitated, both, both morally, if you like, but also what are the kind of stages through which that can be done? Being able to report risks openly and honestly without getting your head bitten off. And at the center of that is not, uh, in contrast to the first point, not information, but actually relationships and the sort of key uh, uh, relationships that um, in some sense are the kind of core moments that matter for risk culture in many of these organizations is the CRO, CEO, CFO uh, triad and how that, uh, how that interacts. Uh, and bear in mind that uh, most of the time it's the CEO and the CFO, as we heard, who are on the board uh, and the CRO who isn't and you know, should be, shouldn't be, I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, th those sorts of relationships became very important um, interactions there, with, uh, moments that matter. So I kind of, we kind of left with a number of questions and whether this, uh, we're really puzzled about the, uh, the three lines of defense. I mean, I'm always interested when something is so much part of common sense now, today, and yet when I look back 10 years, you can't see that. You can't see that phrase. So where did it come from? Which consulting organization invented it? Um, maybe some academics invented it. You know, we're good at inventing the common sense of practitioners. We do it all the time. So uh, where did it come from? And then there's the, um, the, the theme of the risk management or the risk function footprint, which we found was very important. Uh, and this probably is, um, you know, what you'd expect. And, and indeed, there's quite a lot in this research, which is what you would expect. But uh, one was really to do with the power of the risk function. And that power, as manifested in attendance at key management committee meetings uh, and so on. And I, we were always asking the CROs, you know, which management meetings do you not attend but you wish you were at? type of thing. Uh, and we've got some very, very interesting uh, answers to that. And there are clearly tensions between the whole innovation product development side of businesses and the uh, and risk and control uh, side. And, and that would, I would say, that is another sort of cultural moment that matters is the extent to which the risk, the risk function is a voice in the product development uh, uh, area. And uh, our respondents were, were talking quite a bit uh, about that, heavily prompted by me, I might ask. So it's a kind of um, methodological worries there, but still very interesting. Uh, and um, some of the more um, senior ones were trying to construct themselves as a trusted advisor on a par with the, the, the CFO. Uh, and they also mentioned, uh, I think, hot, uh, uh, 
recruitment and, and hotspots uh, in terms of uh, recruiting. I mean, if you think about it, who you let into your organisation is a rather big risk management decision, but it just doesn't get thought of in that way. So one of the things we weren't expecting to find in our research but have found is um, uh, interesting alliances between risk management and human resource divisions, both within organisations uh, but also um, consultants uh, figuring out that actually this is a very important uh, service line and, and uh, should be jointly served by sort of risk people who tend to be accountants and HR who are absolutely not. So it's a very kind of interesting sort of hybrid, hybridization of practice uh, in there. And, um, well, I've got a long way into this talk already, and I haven't mentioned enterprise risk management. You kind of think that would be where one starts. But again, that was quite surprising. Uh, they didn't talk about ERM very much. They just did not mention uh, ERM. But actually, they were, um, when we dug into it, um, using elements of existing ERM frameworks, enterprise risk management frameworks, to have risk culture conversations. So the smart CROs were saying, look, this isn't necessarily about producing new management information of any kind, but it's actually using the existing management information around enterprise risk management that's maybe been a bit dormant to have conversations with the uh, different parts of the business. And I'll, I'll come back to that in, in some of my prescriptive thoughts in just a moment. But I think the kind of the thought in our mind there is, uh, you know, we, we have to produce uh, a big normative report, uh, which will come out in September. And I think one of the uh, um, messages might be there is really, um, it's not about information so much, is how uh, risk functions can contribute to, to risk talk, as well as process development and spreadsheets and all the rest of it, but actually enhance the risk discourse in an organization so that there is this awareness of where you are on the bandwidth and you can make informed decisions about wanting to be there or, or changing things. And then, finally, the fourth theme is, uh, is an old friend of ours. It's uh, the problem of documentation and evidencing what goes on. Um, it's sort of the audit society uh, inside risk culture because um, uh, a lot of our respondents said that actually uh, a lot, quite a bit of the pressure they're getting to think about risk culture, particularly from the regulator, um, is forcing them to engage in sort of artificial documentation practices about risk culture uh, and being good at writing things down. And, and being good at writing things down is not necessarily, as we would all agree, uh, being good at managing risks. So um, a number of them were using what you might call risk culture toolkits, which are essentially um, survey instruments. Uh, and uh, there are only so many times, actually, you can use a survey instrument in an organization before it becomes sort of discredited and tired and and all the rest of it. So uh, they talked about that as a very imperfect kind of tool because very, very difficult to get fresh. Um, some of you do that kind of work a lot, will we'll, we'll know that. Um, but they kind of accepted the, the, you know, the regulatory shadow over the whole implementation of, of risk culture was there, um, and developing resistance to it is not a viable option. But I think this brings out 
in our minds, one of the paradoxes of the whole interest in risk culture in organisations, particularly uh, the regulatory interest. Once you make it into a managerial object and then once, you, once it has to be documented for distant regulators, you've, you've kind of, it's a bit like the patient quality problem, isn't it? You've lost sight of patient quality because you spent so, many, so much time think, uh, having targets for patient quality. Uh, and this sort of, for, ma- for managerial accountants and, you know, myself, this is, this, this is probably one of the inherent paradoxes of management information, that it does interfere with the phenomenon that you're looking at, unless you're very, very careful and reflective. Um, just wanted to, uh, to mention in this respect uh, one of the results from our survey with the, uh, uh, the CII. We've got some... Quite a large number of uh, nice responses uh, from the CIA. We had uh, yeah, about 2,500 responses from uh, what we believe to be uh, a total population of about 20,000, uh, although that's not been sort of firmly verified. Um, but one of, the, one of the results we we got from that was that. Um, Regulators were perceived as a very important driver of risk culture change programs in about half of the organizations. And a lot of the organizations who had that perception uh, went to external advisors to help them with that program. So we see a kind of bifurcation between those organizations who saw the sort of regulatory pressure and sought external advice and those organizations that were sort of less saw it less as regulatory pressure and partly as opportunity who developed their own in-house schemes. And that's something uh, we're going to follow up on. I mean, I thought it was interesting, but it might not be. So, um, coming to the end shortly, uh, just some prescriptive thoughts which come out of the data, the interviews, uh, some of the academic literature we've looked at, and a lot of the um, practice discourse, if you like. I mean, the Institute of Risk Management published a very interesting uh, overview of all the kind of different thoughts and practices about uh, culture and risk culture. Uh, but there's been a lot of stuff out there, the, the SALTS review and, um, and various things. So uh, it's quite a, a sort of rich, um, a, a rich environment for doing academic research. Uh, and we sort of come to the view that... Um, <clears throat> The frequency of touch points between risk and the business, the frequency of these sort of moments that matter, is probably going to be a, a key thing. If one, if one takes risk culture seriously as um, symptomizing the fact that organizations weren't very good at being explicit about where they were in the risk-return trade-off, then um, the risk management function has to get around the organization. And, uh, and actually, a couple of our organizations are really interested in this point and are going uh, and want to measure those touch points uh, in some way. And there are some measurement difficulties, especially for more embedded risk functions. But nevertheless, if they can track variation across uh, different departments or across organizations, we think that's really quite interesting information. And if that variation then correlates with, um, you know, nasty things happening or not happening, that is, the, uh, that is the golden egg, isn't it, really? So 
we're not, we're not there yet, but they, they, they want to track that as a phenomenon. Uh, we think, um, as opposed to measurement, obviously measuring and KRIs and all these things are very important. They were talked about a lot. But the real thing that matters is the quality of interaction around them, the quality of risk talk. Uh, we came across organizations who had the traditional red, amber, green type of tolerance limits for uh, uh, various activities, complaints, you know, call it what you like. Uh, and then you ask them the question, well, what happens when it goes red? And actually, you get a lot of different answers. And uh, often people don't know what to do when something's red. And they should have done something when it was amber and even when it was green. So I think there's, there's, there's information of a KRI-type nature. And then there is the real challenge of what you do to make that actionable uh, and understanding. And we think that's a, that's a little moment that matters in risk culture. If, if metrics mean anything, they generate um, appropriate gradations of activity and action. Uh, and that is a, a very strong ambiguity. So, and that's why you know, organizations like Enron uh, and like uh, Lehman Brothers could have, had fantastic uh, risk indicators with all these red, ambers, and greens. It's just no one did anything about them. Uh, so uh, that's absolutely at the center of things. A more kind of personal uh, prescriptive thought, because uh, in my role as a NED, I've been on the end of this. I think, um, I think stress scenarios are very, very important. No, they're not predictive necessarily, but they get management teams to start thinking about the world uh, that, that they're not living in, the, the world as it could be in unusual circumstances. You have to have management teams, this is very normative, that can, are capable of thinking about different states of the world. Another point we came to is really, uh, and this is coming out of um, our interaction with organizations where safety is very important, so EasyJet being one is, but it comes out of academic literature as well, obsession with detail. Um, so one of the questions uh, we ask uh, some of our respondents is, how often do you update your business continuity plans? Well, I don't know how, how many of you know about business continuity plans, but they they sort of get put in the bottom drawer in many respects, you know. It's hard to be obsessive with them. When, when you're in a business as normal world, it's hard to obsess over updating those plans. So we think that is also a moment that matters, how seriously that's taken, how it's staged, how many people get involved in that. That is an index of risk culture. And another favorite of mine is, um, is sort of actually... Bad risk culture tends to be dominated by spreadsheets. And that's probably a kind of um, terrible thing to say, really. But uh, spreadsheets are not very good at revealing causality and complexity. Uh, they can be. Uh, you can tweak them in certain ways. But uh, the risk register spreadsheet, I mean, I, I die a little when I see those documents. Uh, and, uh, and I think there is an issue there that um, uh, risk registers have become part of the risk culture problem. Uh, and that I think there is a will in, in certain organizations to try and refresh that in a certain way. Uh, and finally, the thing that we didn't expect, which is quite interesting, is um, in creating cross-functional internal colleges of people to think about risk culture. So uh, a couple of CROs who I would see, see in the kind of leading space uh, were getting out there, uh, increasing the touch points with other parts of the business, and actually actively recruiting uh, advocates in HR and in development and so on to create a kind of uh, what we academics might call an epistemic community 
uh, of risk culture, but you don't have to accept that as a concept if you don't want to. Uh, but just a, a kind of internal network of people who are committed to this, so, but so that we don't operate in kind of function, functional uh, silos, as it were. And I thought that was dead interesting. So, very briefly, what we're doing next... Um, we're trying, very difficult, we're trying to kind of uh, follow up on how these uh, risk culture tools are being developed, used and received. Um, a number of consulting organizations are very kindly talking to us about you know, their experiences in that space. Uh, we're quite interested in, in the extent of inter-firm uh, collaboration. So when it comes to operational risk in the airline industry, we actually see a lot of knowledge sharing across different organizations. BA engineers will talk to EasyJet engineers and so on. Don't know about Ryanair, that might be different. They're, they're probably an outlier, but even there, I'd, I'd expect uh, some knowledge sharing. Whereas that's much more, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it's much more truncated, in our view, in financial services. So you could say that if any of this culture stuff means anything, and I'm still in a kind of sceptical box about it, if any of it means anything and is actually active, then uh, collaborative networks, both internally and across industries, uh, would seem to be uh, an important variable. There's the old problem of you know, tr tr trying to figure out whether, you know, uh, as neutrally as we can, what are the effects of, of regulation, um, it won't be a surprise that most of our respondents in insurers and banks are very, very negative about the regulator, extremely negative views, um, uh, unquotable views. So. But the interesting thing that we want to follow up on is really this, uh, this emerging HR risk interface, because if, if people have finally rumbled that this thing called risk culture is actually something to do with behavior, then uh, what is the department of behavior in, in your organization? Well, you don't have one, but the closest you have is really probably the HR department. Uh, and uh, I think what, what is kind of interesting is the extent to which organizations populated by actuaries and, dare I say, accountants and others can really actually think intelligently and with, uh, in a tractable way about behavioral issues. About behavioral issues. We can obviously see the outcomes of behavioral issues in operational events and losses and so on, but uh, have we really got the kind of cultural and intellectual ability to think uh, uh, of lead indicators of behavioral issues? And I think that alliance between um, sort of risk managers who tend to like to calculate value at risk models and things like that and HR and a really interesting sort of hybrid, further hybridization that we might expect uh, within banks. And uh, two more points, uh, what sort of interaction takes place between these first and second lines? This is all about our worrying, you know, what does this three lines of defense model actually, uh, actually mean? Uh, and finally, what are the kind of um, <clears throat> sort of cultural pressure points which lack visibility via metrics and, and there's lots of stuff that is very important to organizations that doesn't get on to risk registers so you know if the CFO and the CRO hate each other you know that's not going to go on a risk register but it's probably the most important information piece of information I need to know as a non-executive director uh, or the CEO needs to know um, so uh, there are these moments that matter, these little kind of pressure points which are not visible 
Uh, and we have to find, a, you know, there has to be, if it means anything as a management object, how do you actually get some traction around those things so that they can be surfaced beyond, uh, you know, gossip in the corridor type of, type of thing, which, which is an important way of managing risk, I appreciate, but uh, uh, much less formal. So there we are. We're not... Um, it's, it's still a bit of a journey uh, here. I hope you've, I've given you a, a flavour of the project. Uh, and um, you may be looking forward to uh, the results in September. I, can't, I can tell you I am really looking forward to them as well, uh, getting, <laughs> getting to that point. Thanks very much. It's Ian Herbert, Loughborough University. I was particularly interested in your uh, note on spreadsheets. Uh, we've been doing some work on spreadsheets, uh, and it, it seems to be that it's the last vestiges of uh, the 90s individualism, and uh, it seems to be a microcosm of uh, a lot of what is happening with uh, risk culture and attitudes to risk. We've been looking at it in terms of uh, the power of the new, um, more functional ERP systems and particularly shared services and the drive towards uh, one source of the truth. But it seems to be that there's a culture there that says, okay, we need to encourage individualism, we need to encourage flair, uh, creativity, the standard systems will only go so far. But of course, as soon as it goes into a spreadsheet, it becomes personal ownership and uh, we, we've not found any sort of real team working with regard to uh, spreadsheets. And, and the problem is that no one really understands them. I think the point came out earlier. What keeps people awake at night? It's complex uh, IT systems. I think a lot of that has been um, taken away or is being taken away with uh, better ARP. But I think the, the risk still exists with uh, spreadsheets. And it seems to be almost a thing that this is my spreadsheet and we've come across this particularly with a Japanese company. You would not think of challenging it because somehow it's this sort of technical um, sort of mechanism which is beyond scrutiny almost, and it, it seems to me exactly the wrong thing um, to have that sort of status to. I, I just wonder if you have any uh, particular comments on your... No, I agree. I mean, I, I very much agree, and I think, um, I mean, the spreadsheets I look at have uh, sort of ownership columns on them. I mean, completely normal. Uh, we take it for granted. Uh, but actually, I think that is part of the kind of uh, fragmentation and individualization that you're talking about. Um, because, you know, imagine if you have a, a, a sort of column on reputational risk and then you say that's owned by, well, it's owned by the CEO ultimately, I guess. But the whole notion of ownership of some of these things is, is rather bizarre. Um, so uh, they develop their, uh, they generate their own kind of uh, responsibilization, to use a horrible term. Uh, which is not necessarily very functional uh, in a business. So, I mean, I, I very much agree with your observation. Do, do the spreadsheets you see also have uh, communication, you know, low form, uh, column, communication factors, you know, enormous great risk? They have a lot of white space, Michael, and that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. 
Vicky Jackson, freelance management consultant. Have you looked at the flexibility and responsiveness in risk culture to pressures from things like social media, looking at negative and positive sentiment, and how that impacts the whole profile? Um, I mean, we haven't. Um, I mean, I think uh, what, what is happening, I mean, boards are very interested now uh, and have been for a, a bit of time in how their organisation is being talked about externally. So there is much more formal tracking of uh, Twitter and blogs and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and you, you could say that's, that is actually reputational risk management. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that is, that's what the regulator does to investigate uh, companies as well. So the regulator, in thinking about its risks, is looking at the blogs on financial companies as well as a source of information, not uh, overarching. So those things have definitely entered into the kind of risk management uh, lexicon. Um, I think it probably does, you know, from a traditional spreadsheet, internal, um, you know, value at risk model type approach, uh, it is quite a challenge. You'll find these things crop, uh, sort of filtering into the operational risk management space, which tends to be a bit more hybrid anyway. Um, but that's what we see. And the other question I had was about in not-for-profits, they have a completely unique set of risks around things like use of volunteers. So when you were talking about the people that you bring into your organization, are you going to focus on that, those kind of things as well? Um, well, I'll focus on it if it's a focus of the respondent organizations. I mean, what, we, what we've seen is that um, there is a, a little bit more behavioral screening going on. I don't know whether this is effective or what it tells you, but there is more of that going on, um, or, or it's reported there's more of that going on in terms of you know, who you let in uh, at point of entry. Uh, and there's uh, more risk training at, at point of entry as well. But, um, you know, there's still a very high residual risk uh, there, I would have thought. So I don't, you know, not suggesting any of these things are, uh, are perfect, but I think, I think organizations are responding to, to that as an issue. Richard Wenninger speaking. Um, you suggested that there needed to uh, perhaps be a department for behavior um, to get a better control over, over risks. And uh, then ask the question, does that therefore get passed over to the HR department? Um, I think the moment that happens, you failed. Um, it's a bit like saying who's responsible for safety in the factory, you know, oil on the floor, it's the responsibility, is it the factory manager or the HR department? Oh, safety, HR department. It's wrong. It's the responsibility of the factory manager. He's the guy that's running his factory. And I think if you take the responsibility for behavior away from the senior management and just dump it in as a responsibility of HR, then the wrong people have um, disowned that, that problem. And if you're going to get no, I think you're completely right. And again, normatively, you know, I'm completely with you. And um, uh, I mean, I wasn't meaning to suggest that uh, f for a moment. And what I'm saying is, you know, if you think behavior is really important as a CEO, what do you do? 
you know, what do you do? And in some ways, one of the things you have to do, there might be many, <laughs> one of the things I'd expect a CEO to do if they take behavior seriously is to appoint a really good head of HR because that's going to be part of it, not the whole thing. Uh, obviously, you know, we can be, probably be rude about HR in this room, uh, and, and, and I take your implication, uh, but that is simply the point. If behavior is important, and it's the CEO and the, the senior team's responsibility to think about that, what is the kind of knowledge base of that? You know, what are they actually going to do with it other than talk in the boardroom? No example. I've got. I had some examples. You can't tell me I didn't have examples. All right. Now I can give you examples till five o'clock if you want. I'm about to come onto that now. Um, I think most companies do have a, a risk department and a risk manager these days, and that's grown in the last uh, ten years. Um, who are the people in this sort of department? What's their background from your experience? And where is this department located? Is part of the uh, general manager's office? Uh, that's the first question. The second is just a remark. I think no. The second one is: uh, Have you, in your work, also looked at the stress tests that the banks have gone through in the last few years? I think you get a lot of examples in that of how they work. And can, because uh, the newspapers always report this, 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 this bank has passed the stress test. What, what are the uh, criteria? That's very important to look at as well. The last remark is, I think, your example of the Libyan crisis, LFC's implication, and, uh, of, uh, as you say, paying for, the, for uh, teaching, the, training the civil servants, that didn't take into account at all the political downside that you mentioned as well. Yeah. Well, I said that. I said that. Yeah. Uh, sorry? Yeah, no, I, I, I gave you one. Um, yeah, stress tests. Well, I mean, I, I live stress tests, so we do them. I mean, uh, but I think um, from a risk culture point of view, the, 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 stress the, the dimension of stress tests is not there, you know, have you got enough capital if the market falls 40%? I mean, uh, you know, actually, that's quite easy to do. Uh, the dimension of the stress test that's really interesting is how many people are involved in that conversation, you know, is it two PhDs in physics who then have a chat to the audit committee chair who hasn't got a clue what they're talking about? Or is there a larger um, uh, community of people who are involved in the, the thinking behind that stress test and, and go away with some ideas about what they, what they might do tomorrow in order to mitigate that risk? So I think the, I think the staging of the stress test and the, and the uh, communita communitarian nature of it will vary enormously uh, even though the FT will report, you know, the kind of headline uh, uh, risk figures. Uh, where are risk? They're all over the place because buildings are very different in, um, in, in the city of London and, and elsewhere. Um, sometimes the risk officer sits very, very close to the CEO. And I think, but I think, that, I think it's a good question. I think that geography, that internal geography actually matters because if you are going to say that risk talk and... and if you like, risk management by walking around. I think there's a phrase, management by walking around. Well, risk management by walking around, if that matters, then uh, that proximity matters. Can we take a moment again? Yeah.